I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Today we continue our eight-part sermon series entitled One Another. The word that's rendered one another in your Greek New Testament is found 100 times in 94 verses with 47 of those verses giving instruction to the church. Today we come to one of those commands that is misunderstood and sometimes used perhaps in an abusive way. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read one verse in your hearing, verse 21. Please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 5, let me read in your hearing, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you asking that you will help the sermon to be clear today. And may your word not only be found on the lips of this preacher, but also on the ears of your hearers. Help us to be transformed by the power of the gospel. We ask for this in the strongest name that we know. It's the name of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I have been told that non-Christians will not want to become Christians unless there are credible Christians for them to observe. If the gospel is to be heard, it must first be seen. There is a call of the gospel that is counterintuitive. It is also countercultural. It flies in the face of who we are as a people. The call of the gospel is something that must be demonstrated daily in our lives. Today we come to this command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's do our best to put that in its context. I think that the passage probably begins somewhere around chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul says, be very careful then how you live. Christian, it does make a difference how you live. Do not abuse the amazing grace of God that's been showered upon you. Don't respond in such a way as if to say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. All my sins are under the blood of the Lord. Therefore, it really doesn't matter how I live. I can do whatever I want to do. I can say whatever I want to say. No, Paul reminds us, be very careful then how you live. How you and I live makes a difference, not just in our relationship with the Lord, but in our relationship with the watching world. So be very careful how you live. He then quickly gives three contrasts, telling us what not to do, then followed by what we ought to do. In verse 15, we live not as unwise, but as wise. The wisdom he has in mind has little to do with intellect or academics. That's everything to do with morality. So that the author of the Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So we're careful how we live, not as unwise, but as wise. Secondly, in verse 17, he says, not as foolish, but as those who discern the will of God. The Bible consistently says, a fool says in his heart there is no God. Paul is telling the church, don't live like that. Don't live your life in such a way that it, you act as if there is no God. You know better. You know there is a God. So don't be foolish in your actions. Don't be foolish in your speech. Do not be foolish, 
but be one who pursues the will of God and knows how to discern it. Then you come to verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. And he gives the third contrast, which I will contend is the largest contrast that governs the entire passage. He says, not as those who get drunk, but rather be filled with the Spirit of God. You don't act like the uh, drunken people of the world. Instead, you act as if you're controlled by the Spirit of God. Not only is Paul advising the church against drunkenness, but he's also doing an analogy that works in the Greek language and it equally works in the English language. He is saying, do not be consumed with spirits with a little s. Those tend to make you physically intoxicated. No, I want you to be under the influence of the Spirit with a capital S. I want you to be spiritually intoxicated. I don't want you to be physically drunk. I want you to be spiritually drunk. I want you to be so possessed and consumed by the Spirit of God that Jesus is on your breath. That when people are around you, they smell Jesus. That when people are around you, it is Jesus who does not slur your speech, but he sanctifies your speech. It is Jesus who doesn't cause you to stumble and stagger through the streets, but he calls you to walk a sanctified life before a watching world. I want you to be so overwhelmed with Jesus that you are filled with the Spirit of God. This past week, I heard someone make a comment about the consumption of alcohol that I thought is appropriate and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, the preacher said it this way. He said, I, I have read that when a person consumes alcohol, it causes their brain to leak brake fluid. They just don't slow down as quickly. They just don't stop as quickly. They don't come to a screeching halt. They continue to, they say things they ought not to say. They do things they ought not to do. And when a person consumes alcohol, it causes their brain to leak brake fluid. So they can't stop their life. Their life is barreling out of control. Now Paul is advising the church and encouraging the church against drunkenness. But more than that, he's saying, I want you to be so careful how you live that people think you are spiritually intoxicated, that you are drunk on Jesus, that they think and they know that you are filled with the Spirit not with a little s, spirits, but a big s, capital S, spirit of the almighty God. What follows after verse 18 and verses 19, 20, and 21, you will find five participles. A participle tells how we are to be filled with the spirit of God. So he says things like that we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we sing unto the Lord. We make music unto him. We give thanks to God. And the fifth participle is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see the analogy, don't you? That Paul is saying, as you are governed by the Spirit of God, as you're under the influence of Jesus, he will affect how you speak to one another. 
We will speak to one another in words and songs of praise and exaltation. We will sing unto the Lord, for we've got a song in our heart. We've got joy in our step. We will make music because music is the ministry of the soul. We will give thanks to God in our words and in our walk, by our lips and by our lifestyles. And ultimately, people will know that you are spirit-filled when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this passage that I just read for you, this one verse of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, is really a participle that shows us how we are to be filled with the Spirit of God and, and under the umbrella of, be very careful then how you live as a follower of Christ. So as followers of the Lord, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is counterintuitive. This is countercultural. For us to submit to one another, what does the word submit mean? In its strictest sense, it is a military term. It means to arrange oneself under, it means to relinquish your rights. It doesn't deny that you have rights and entitlement, but one who submits is one who relinquishes those rights. You and I may phrase it this way. It's a person who lays down his rights card. We are to submit to one another for the sake of the gospel. It's not that uh, you can't think that. It's not that you shouldn't receive that. It's not that you don't deserve this or that. It's just that when we submit to each other, we, we voluntarily lay down our rights card. Now, once again, in the strictest sense, submission in its military form, can be coerced. But throughout the Bible, submission is not so much coerced as it is a willful act, Will, willfully arranging oneself under, willfully relinquishing our rights and laying down our rights card. Now, once again, who is our example? Our example is Jesus. He says it right there in that statement. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of our worship of Christ, out of our exaltation of Christ, out of our fear and trembling of Christ. We want to be like Jesus, so we want to live like him. So in Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant who is crushed for our iniquity. In Mark chapter 10, he tells his followers, I came to serve not to be served, even though he has every right to be served. He's the king of the cosmos. In a place like John chapter 13, he now shows them the full extent of his love, and he goes, and as the master, he washes the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. Jesus shows us what it is to lay down the rights card. He shows us what it is to relinquish his rights. But the greatest passage that describes Jesus as our example must come from Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus, being in the very nature, form, image, likeness as God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. But he made himself nothing. You and I could say he laid down his rights card. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a human. He became obedient to death, even death on a despicable cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now Jesus is exalted only after he willfully relinquished his rights and laid down his rights card. And it is God who exalts. So Jesus is our example in all things. Specifically, when it comes to be careful then how you live, you live like Jesus. You are to be filled with the Spirit of God. What's the evidence that you are filled with the Spirit of God? Well, one of the five participles, the last one says that you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when we have this demeanor, when we have this characteristic that's alive and well in the body of Christ here at First Baptist Pelham, where we are doing our best to outserve one another. We're doing our best to minister to one another and minister to others. That there are times when, you know what? We will willfully lay down our rights card. That's counterintuitive. Everything inside a sinful heart wants to be proud and arrogant and do its own thing and call its own shots. Oh, but to be submissive, it's to arrange oneself under. It's to relinquish rights. It's the evidence that we are filled with the Spirit of God. When you turn to the very next line, verse 22, Paul says, let me give a little bit more instruction on what it looks like to be spirit-filled in a watching world so that the world even looks at your marriages and your marriages reflect the glory of Christ. So verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Later in that passage, he'll say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Arrange oneself under, relinquish your rights, lay down your rights card. Wives, submit to your husbands. This morning, I want you to clearly see what Paul says. And by seeing it in clarity, hopefully, you will also come to some conclusions of what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, all women are to submit to all men. Doesn't say that. He doesn't even say that a wife is to submit to all men. It doesn't say that. It says that a wife is to submit to her husband. Throughout this passage, Paul will say the singular relationship that is so paramount and powerful, so significant and spectacular in this world that reflects the relationship between Christ and his church is the relationship between a wife and her husband. That this husband-wife relationship is the one singular relationship that accurately reveals the connectedness and the relationship between Christ and his church. So a wife submits to her husband. It's not that she submits to anybody else. It's that. It's she submits to her husband. This past week, the last phrase of that verse struck me in the face and should confront every husband by grabbing you by the shirt collar. Do you see the last phrase? 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You must reach the same conclusion I reached. I'm not the Lord. The scripture is calling my wife to submit to me as she submits to the Lord, but I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Lord. I'm finite. He's infinite. I'm selfish. He's sacrificial. I am sinful. He is sinless. I got to the end of that 22nd verse. I read that last phrase. I I, I sat in my quiet moment and I said, Lord, how can I do this? I'm not the Lord. And it struck me with such simplicity and profundity. You're not the Lord, but you're supposed to resemble Christ to your wife. You're supposed to act like Jesus to her. She is to submit to you as she submits to the Lord, for she's taking her cue from the church. Has the church ever thought it was a bad idea to submit to Christ? The answer is no. The church has never thought this is a stupid idea. This is a bad idea. This is going to lead us down the wrong path. If we submit to Jesus, he's going to take us places that are bad for us. No, the church has always said it's a good thing for we as a church, as the bride of Christ, to submit to Jesus. Now, have we always done it perfectly? No. Does that diminish the command that we ought to? No. We ought to submit to Christ because we know that that submission is well-placed in Jesus. We, We respect him, don't we? We know as a church that Jesus has our best interest at mind. We, we know that Jesus will never abuse us. We know that Jesus will never manipulate us. We know that Jesus will never neglect us. It is a good idea for the church to submit to Christ because we respect and trust Jesus. In the very same way, husbands, your wife is to submit to you, but you have better resemble Jesus to her. You don't abuse her. You don't manipulate her. You don't neglect her. You cherish her and you treasure her the way that Jesus treasures his bride, the church. I am not neutering the scripture. I am not getting the woman off the hook. No, I want you to hear clearly what the scripture says under the authority of the Holy Spirit. The scripture says it calls a wife to submit to her husband. I'm not getting her off the hook. I'm just placing the husband on the hook too. So so I'm not saying, wife, don't worry about it. You don't have to do this. This was an antiquated call that Paul had upon the first century. No, it's not antiquated. It is as contemporary today as it's ever been. This is in your best interest, the Lord says. It is good for a wife to submit to the godly guidance of her husband. And husbands, you've got to be as Christ to her. 
And husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Once again, I want you to clearly hear, uh, Paul does not command men to just love all women. Also doesn't say that a man is to, that a husband is to love all women as Christ loved the church. No, there is a distinct relationship that exists. There is a distinct, exclusive, singular relationship in this world that mirrors the relationship of Christ and his church. And it's the marital relationship between a biological man and a biological woman for life. It is this marital relationship where God says, husbands, you must love your wife as Christ loved the church. So that as the church is under the headship of Jesus, so a wife is under the headship of her husband. What is biblical headship? What does that mean? What does that look like? I'll tell you what the old farmer told me in my first pastorate some 20 years ago. He said, Pastor, if you have to tell your wife you're the head of the household, you ain't the head of the household. Those words have been spoken to me over 20 years ago, and I still have never forgotten them. Because that farmer was right. This is not a recipe for coercion. This is not a recipe for aggressive manipulation. This is not where the man has to put the woman in her place and tell her, woman, you gotta be submissive to me. If you've got to tell your wife you're the head of the household, newsflash, you ain't the head of the household. That's not biblical headship. So what is biblical headship? Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us example after example. Now, every time it is in the sense that Jesus is the head of the church. But once again, that's where we find our understanding and definition of headship in a biblical sense. How did Jesus interact with the church? That's how a husband is to interact with his wife. So in a place like Ephesians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 23. Everything is under his feet because he is the head of the church. Now that's a clear reference to Jesus. And it communicates some level of authority. That that a godly husband, you, you have the responsibility to lead. You have the responsibility given by God to, to be one of authority. Now don't abuse it. The difference is Jesus is perfect and we ain't. And so there are times that you might get selfish with this and sinful with this and you gotta fight against it. But at its beautiful moment, this biblical headship is that there is some authority that God has given the husband in the marriage and the home. Biblical headship involves authority. In a place like Ephesians chapter four, We are told that we grow up into the head that is Christ. So our spiritual growth, that Jesus is the one who grows us into him, for we are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are in him. This is the hope of glory. It's a great mystery, isn't it? I mean, how in the world can the God of the cosmos be in us? How can we, as finite as we are, be in him? Yet we grow up into the head, 
Jesus. So we're growing up to to receive his instruction, to receive his lessons and guidance. Biblical headship not only has something to do with authority, but it has also something to do with spiritual direction. That's why you've heard me say numerous times, men, you are the spiritual leaders of your home. Where do you get that? A place like Ephesians chapter 4. That as Christ, we grow up into him. He has some um, influence, a lot of influence, over how we grow in the faith. So dads and husbands, you are to have great influence on how your wife and children grow up in the faith. You are to be a spiritual leader. Oh, but then you come to Ephesians chapter 5, and it speaks of the headship of Christ, for he is our Savior. Now, don't let that one get to your head. That does not mean, husbands, that you're a Savior. You can't save anybody from their sins. It doesn't mean that you're a Savior, but it's the aspect that you are the protector. You, Jesus has kept us from all harm. He's kept us from eternal destruction. He is our Savior. Biblical headship has something to do with protection. So that that husbands, we're willing to die for our wives. We protect them from the attacks of the adversary. We do our best to wield our influence well. So that we have a family pointed to God and glorifying him. So biblical headship has something to do with authority, leadership responsibility. It has something to do with spiritual direction, for we are to grow up in the faith. It has something to do with being a protector, keeping our loved one from harm. That's biblical headship. And Paul says that um, as as the church submits to the head of Christ, so the wife submits to the godly leadership, the head of her husband. Now, friends, I've made mention of this before, but it needs to be repeated. These verses are not a recipe for abuse. There are people in the religious landscape of our day in the 21st century that say that some of the abuse that's gone on in the church has gone on under the guise of religion because of barbaric, antiquated teachings of like we find here in Ephesians chapter five. So that we have wives and women that are being abused by their husbands all because of what Paul says here. Friends, this is not a recipe for abuse. In no way is this a recipe for coerced manipulation. You are to be Christ to your family. Has Christ ever abused his church? Has Christ ever manipulated his church? Has Christ ever abandoned his church? Has Christ ever beaten his church? No, he's not. And all of this relationship is couched. The husband-wife relationship is couched in the relationship of Christ and his church. To be submissive does not mean that you lose your voice or that you can't think or you cannot verbalize your opinions. 
if you're in a relationship where the man is somehow insinuating or flat out telling you, I'm the one who makes all the decisions and it doesn't matter what you think. I don't even want to hear your opinion on this or that or anything. Friends, that is not submission, that is persecution. Because the definition of persecution is to silence the voice of the one being persecuted. Once again, I'm not neutering the scripture. I'm just telling you what it means and what it doesn't mean. This is not a recipe for any type of physical, sexual, mental, emotional abuse. It is never permitted in the household of God and never permitted in any household that claims God over the doorpost. So then you get to chapter 5, verse 31. The apostle takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he'll be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Not long after that match made in heaven, that first marriage of our first parents, Adam and Eve, not long after that did the serpent slither onto the stage of humanity. He enticed Eve with the forbidden fruit. She saw that it was good for food and good to gain knowledge, so she took some and she ate it. She never stopped to consider the instruction that must have been given by her husband, Adam. She never thought to herself, now, is this a good idea? Would God want me to do this? Should I go and ask my husband if this is a good decision? No, she threw caution to the wind. She took and she ate it. Where was her husband, you ask? I can tell you this much. He wasn't galloping through the garden on a gazelle. No, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, he's right there beside her. She took the fruit, she ate it, and then she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. He stood beside her in stupid silence. There's silence, and then there's stupid silence. This is an example of stupid silence. He knew better. He knew the instruction of God. He had shared it with his wife. Together they knew you can eat from any tree in the garden, but not the tree in the middle of the garden. That's the spot that Satan drew them. And he stood in stupid silence, abdicated his role as a leader of his household, and he said nothing. Even when the fruit passed by his mouth, he didn't go, "Mm, no, no, not me. He took it and he ate it. And then God showed up. God cursed the serpent in the ground and he punished Adam and Eve. There is grace in that. God should have cursed the serpent and the ground and he also should have cursed Adam and Eve and all of humanity. But he didn't. He cursed the serpent, he cursed the ground, but to Eve, this was her punishment. I will increase your pain in childbirth. Your desire will be for your husband. He punished Adam. By the sweat of your brow, you will toil and labor and eat your food. To Eve, the Lord said, I will increase your pain in childbirth. Any mamas in the house who want to say amen and oh my? I mean, if it wasn't for Eve, 
Y'all wouldn't need epidurals. Increase your pain in childbirth. I was in the labor, labor and delivery room twice. I watched as my sweet wife gave birth to Molly Grace and then a few years later to Nathan. To watch a birth is miraculous. It's nothing short of spectacular. <laughs> but I will tell you, there were moments when I sat there and observed and I thought, ooh, that's got to hurt. Now, I didn't say it, not in the moment. I'm smarter than I look. I knew I shouldn't say that in the moment, but there were times I thought, ooh, that's got to hurt. I'll increase your pain in childbirth. And maybe there's even an increase in pain in child raising. Can I get an amen? And your desire will be for your husband. That word desire does not mean sexual desire. Sorry, husbands. It just doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean sexual desire. It doesn't mean your desire for your husband will be a sexual desire. No, it means your desire for your husband will be a desire to control him. To usurp his authority as a leader. And you will try to manipulate him. One of the effects of the fall of humanity is that in homes, in marriages, not only is the pain of childbirth increased, but also there's a desire for the woman to control the man in the household. To Adam, he said, um, by the sweat of your brow, you will labor and toil and eat your food. In other words, you'll become a workaholic to the neglect of your family. You'll work, work, work. Your identity will be wrapped up in your work. Who you are will be closely attached to what you do professionally. And you will give to that 50, 60, 70 hours a week and you will abdicate your responsibility in the home to be the head of your household. So there'll be no authority, there'll be no spiritual guidance and headship and there will be no protection over your wife and children. And you'll just labor and you'll be known by your work. Could God have gotten this any more right? I mean, think about marriages that you know, maybe even the marriages that you have. Think about marriages where there is a tug of war that goes on within the household. It's World War III all the time because the husband, he just wants to get out of the house. He just wants to work as much as possible so he can avoid the old ball and chain and all the rugrats that are there with him. And so he just has abdicated his authority and his leadership. And wherever there's a vacuum of leadership, somebody will pick it up. And it's either the spouse or the children that pick up the vacuum of leadership. And there are some homes that are ruled by Junior. And there are some homes that are ruled by Sally. There are some homes that are ruled by Mama. Instead of the husband being the biblical head of his home, giving authority and giving leadership and giving protection to the ones he loves. Could God have gotten it any more right? I mean, this is how the devil attacks marriages. Husbands usurping 
giving up their God-given responsibility and wives seeking to control and call the shots because the wife said, somebody has got to run the locomotive. Somebody's got to run it. If you're not going to do it, i got to do it. And somebody's got to call the shots. Somebody's got to run it. Somebody's got to raise the children into the head of Christ. And Paul is just reminding the church this relationship of a husband and wife is so important. And listen, I'm not necessarily talking about marriages outside the church. I'm talking about marriages inside the church. And far too marriages inside the church, you could give testimony to that tug of war that has gone on for many months, many years, perhaps even decades. And sometimes what happens is the husband, maybe he just stands there in silent, in stupid silence. Maybe he just tries to seize back some of that authority by coerced manipulation. But those are recipes for disaster. Because um, the wife is not called to be obedient like a child in chapter 6 verse 1. Or uh, just a, a bondservant that labors unto the master as in chapter 6 verse 5. A description of the workplace. So the wife is not a child and the wife is not a bondservant. But the wife is like the church. And the husband ought to be like Christ. So you get to the very last line, chapter 5, verse 33. Uh, so a husband is to love his wife and a wife is to respect her husband. Oh, Paul taps in to what's wanted most by the majority of people. I mean, there's not a wife listening to my voice who would not agree with me that what you want more than anything else, you want your husband to love you like Christ loved the church. And there's not a husband listening to me who would not agree that what you want from your wife is you want respect. You want her to respect you as the church respects Christ. Because if you're in a relationship where the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church and the wife respects her husband for the good and glory of God, then you can handle any outside scenario. It doesn't matter if there is a, a war going on at work or if there's chaos in the streets or there's difficulty in the marketplace. Listen, if you've got a peaceful home, you can handle anything. But if your home is chaotic... It doesn't matter if everything else has fallen into place. Everything is topsy-turvy, upside down. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, be careful then how you live. Be careful how you treat your spouse. Be careful how you interact with your family. Be careful how you live. Don't live as unwise, but live as wise. Don't live as foolish, but live as those who discern God's will. Don't live as those who are drunk uh, in the world. Live as those who are intoxicated with Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit of God. And the evidence that you're filled with the Spirit of God is that you have a husband and a wife, and the husband loves and cherishes his wife the way Christ cherished the church, and a wife submits to her husband the way the church submits to Christ. And the only way this works is with mutual trust and love and commitment. Non-Christians don't want to become Christians unless there are some credible Christians for them to observe. 
If the gospel is to be heard, it must first be seen. So let people see Jesus in us. What about it? Let them see Jesus in our lives. Let them see Jesus in our marriages. Let them see Jesus in our homes. Let them see Jesus in our churches. Let them see Jesus in our marketplaces. Let them see Jesus in uh, our recreation. Let them see Jesus in everything. Let's just be a godly guy and a godly gal who give glory to a great God. Do you hear me? Let's be a godly guy with a godly gal who gives glory to a great God. Let's be people who are very careful how we live because it does make a difference. Listen, all of this is couched in our understanding of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, everything I'm saying today makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It is counterintuitive for anybody to love like Christ, to be submissive like the church. This counterintuitive doesn't make sense. If you're outside of Christ, this makes no sense in the world. But today, if you're outside of Christ, I implore you to come into Christ. You will find him as one who will never disappoint you, never neglect you, never abuse you, never manipulate you, never neglect you. He will cherish you for now and all of eternity. If you do not know Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. As soon as we start singing a song, I want you to come forward, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, hey, I need to be bound to Jesus. Maybe you are a Christian and today you just need to pray for marriage. Maybe it's your marriage you need to pray for. Maybe it's your children's marriage that you need to pray for. Maybe it's the marriage of somebody who confided in you. Maybe you're, you have the gift of singleness and you've been sitting here all day thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? Yet even if you have the gift of singleness, you can pray for marriage because marriage is the one relationship in all the world that gives the watching world an identity of how Christ relates to his church. The marriage relationship is paramount in the gospel. If the world is going to understand the gospel, the world has to see the gospel as husbands relate to their wives. So maybe today you just need to come and pray for marriage. Maybe it's yours. Maybe it's somebody else's. If you're here today and you're in an abusive relationship, and I know how tough this has to be, um, If you, by the power of God, could let the chains fall and you come and just tell us, we will do our best to minister with you and to you effectively and faithfully so that God will get the glory because you weren't designed to stay in abuse. That's not why God made you. And today, Maybe there'll be some chains that fall to the glory of God Almighty. Be careful how you live. Be intoxicated by Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. There may be some who need to come for salvation. There may be others who need to come to pray for their marriages or to pray for other marriages of their children or grandchildren, friends and neighbors and coworkers. Oh, Father, there may be some who need to come to ask for help. There may be some who need to come and join this church. Uh, Lord, hear the prayers of your people in the pew. Hear the prayers of your people at the altar. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.